and 26. When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dream. Then our mouth was filled with laughter and our tongue with shouts of joy. Then they said among the nations, The Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us. We are glad. Restore our fortunes, O Lord, like streams in the Negev. Those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. He who goes out weeping, bearing the seed for sowing, shall come home with shouts of joy, bringing his sheaves with him. We are going to uh, return to uh, 125 next week. Uh, time constraints upon me this week. Uh, I had some done some work on Psalm 126 before, so we're going to go back uh, to 125, Lord willing, next Lord's Day. But uh, this is a uh, a wonderful psalm. It was a psalm that was written uh, in the post-exilic time, uh, the time after God had turned the bondage of His people back. And the, the, the bondage, of course, was the fact that they were in, uh, in Babylon. And that, in all likelihood, is the context for the psalm, when the, the Lord restored the fortunes of uh, uh, Zion. But the word there for restored is brought back, is to, re to restore by bringing something back. And so, the, uh, the, in all likelihood, uh, some have seen that it may have been some military uh, success that they, the Lord had given to Israel or some uh, rescuing them from the jaws of defeat or discouragement in some way. But in all likelihood, it is uh, referring to uh, the, uh, the Babylonian captivity. And now just to put that in context, uh, there are certain moments in Israelite history that we keep coming back to. Certain uh, important events uh, the the Exodus is one of those uh, under Moses when they came up by the hundreds of thousands out of Egypt they went into the land and they lived in the land of Israel for uh, 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 hundreds of years from the time of uh, Moses roughly uh, 1400 BC up to the late sixth century uh, when it, it, they were carted off to Babylon because of their disobedience. And we looked at some of that this morning as we thought about the destruction of Jerusalem where, God, where, the, where the cup of judgment had reached the top. They were filling up the, the cup of judgment until it got to the very brim. And at that point in 70 AD, God moved in in judgment on the nation of Israel. But as, as I said, that wasn't the first time that God... Had, had done that, but that he had also uh, performed the same act of judgment uh, upon the temple of Solomon. And the people of the city were carted off to Babylon and to spend 70 years there. And then after 70 years, God began to work in the heart 
of someone by the name of Cyrus. He was a king of, of uh, uh, the Medo-Persian Empire. He, he began to work in his heart to uh, uh, give favor to the Jews and to allow them to go back into the land. And this was all according to the decree of God. Jeremiah and Isaiah had prophesied that they would spend 70 years. 70 years was determined for them in the land. And when the time was up, God would allow the people to go back. And this is the context when he says, when the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dreamed. It was beyond our wildest imagination that God would uh, do this for us. And he, he, he talks about the joy of it. Then our mouth was filled with laughter and our tongue with shouts of joy. Then they said among the nations, the Lord has done, done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us. We are glad. Of course, these episodes of bondage, as we've been seeing so often with the Exodus, is a picture of Jesus and the cross, isn't it? As we saw in Luke, uh, Moses and Elijah spoke to Jesus about the exodus that he would perform on the cross. And so these returnings, these coming back, these events where they come back into the land are emblematic of the soul being saved and the ultimate salvation of dwelling with God in the new heavens and the new earth. Making our dwelling place with God. God coming to live among us and us with Him forever. And so that's what this is. And so often, the Old Testament um, uh, uh, writers' words are picked up in the New Testament to describe that the, the fullness of God's blessing in that, in bringing the people back. And so, and so it is with ourselves. And maybe you still know, uh, maybe it's still fresher in your mind, the joy of coming to a saving knowledge of Jesus. Maybe you can look back to a day or a moment in your life when you could say, that was the time when I, I, I surrendered my life and soul to Christ. And when He came and took over my life, and the, the great break with my past life, my life of unbelief, and so on. There's a, a new um, movie coming out uh, on the life of uh, C.S. Lewis, and it looks like a very interesting uh, movie. But uh, there, there, ha there was another movie a number of years ago called Shadowlands, Anthony Hopkins, and it didn't go into so much the spiritual life of... Um, of C.S. Lewis, but this new movie really uh, uh, goes into the fact that he came out of the darkness of atheism and as he comes to the, to the light of the gospel. And, um, uh, and C.S. Lewis uh, wrote a, a lot about that. But it's good for us to remember back to those days. And that is something that a person can relive again and again. Not just saying, okay, I was saved in 1982 uh, in July and it was a, a Thursday and so on. But even if you can't look back to a time like that, and some of us can't. I can't. I can't pick, I can't pick out a, 
a day or an hour when I said, that's when it happened. I write it down in my journal or whatever it is. Many of us can't. Maybe you can. But that joy is an ever-rising spring within us. That's the wonderful thing about the Christian life. Because the Christian life is a process of salvation where you go through a series of, as it were, saving events. Now, you can only get saved once. You can only be born again once. You can only have the righteousness of Jesus applied to your life once. But there are episodes in our lives where we are brought low, where we go through a season maybe of sin, where we go through a season of backsliding, and we feel far away from God. And God comes and He visits us again with His mercy and His grace. And our hearts are enlarged once again. We, we, so we are able to enjoy on an ongoing basis the joy of our salvation to the point where we are amazed. Like John Newton, amazing grace, how sweet the sound. It's a, it's a permanent fixture in the life of the Christian where we go back to those wells and we drink of that fresh water. We go, go back to the, the place where uh, we, we uh, enjoyed our salvation, where, where uh, the Lord made Himself known to us in a powerful way. That's the, the blessing of the people of God, of the children of God. And I hope it's your blessing as well, that you're able to take up this psalm and say, though I can't pick out the day and the hour of my salvation, yet I can look back in times of my life where God visited me afresh and poured His grace into my life and gave me unspeakable joy. And He made me to, to uh, uh, realize how much I owe Him. What a, a great... I was going to get that fly, but... Uh, what, what a great uh, 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 debt I owe to God. And so this is an ever-increasing, ever-present, overflowing uh, spirit that we all ought to have, especially as the Christian matures. Okay, It's one thing for us to look back in our Christian infancy to whatever it was, 1979, 1981, uh, you know, 2014, whatever the day it was. And say, oh, I had great joy. And if only had I was, if only I could live with that joy all the time. But friends, listen, the as we mature, as we get to know the Bible, we ought to be cultivating a life of amazement as we go. So that even if you're five, ten, twenty, 40 years into your Christian life, you're still able to say, I can't believe the Lord has saved me. I find myself time, in times in my life saying that. And I've been a Christian for uh, over, well, almost 40 years. And I can still find myself saying, how can it be? And you're you, because what's happening is it's you're, you're maturing as a Christian. And with that maturity comes not a 
taking for granted what God has done. That ought not to be the case. But the more you discover about the God of the Bible, the more you discover about the sins of your heart, the more you discover about what your sins really deserve, and the lengths to which Jesus had to go to rescue you. You see, that's all part of the growing process. And as you do, the joy of, of your salvation comes back to you afresh. So you are able then to enjoy that conversion moment that you may not be able to remember years ago, but you're able to renew it again and again and again. That's what these, the, the psalmist is doing here. We were like those who dreamed. We couldn't believe it. When you think of the over 7 million people in this world, and here you are tonight. Did I say 7 million? I meant 7 billion. 7 billion people in this world. And you can say, I hope all of us can say here tonight that I'm headed for glory. That I've been a recipient of the, the God's grace through the Gospel. That I was brought up in a Christian home. We've won the lottery. Just by, I'm not putting it in terms of lottery, I'm si simply saying that we, the, the odds of it are so astronomical. But it's not odds, it's God's grace. That you're here tonight and there are billions of people around the world who are in utter darkness. Friends, that's a cause of rejoicing. That's a cause of saying, I can't believe it. It's like a dream. It's, a, it's unreal. And what are you doing? You're reliving the joy of your salvation afresh. You're praising God. You're, 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 you're fighting for that joy. You're, you're thinking about, in biblical terms, where you've come from and where you're going. That's what the psalmist means when he says, He put a new song in my mouth doesn't mean he picks up his pen and he starts writing out a new song. But I'm able to take the old songs and sing them as if they were new. I'm able to sing them afresh. I'm able to go to a psalm like 126 and say, He has filled my soul with laughter and my tongue with joy at what He has done. Can this be real? That's what they were saying to themselves. And he uses this as a time, as an occasion for evaluating where they are now as a people. Where the people of God are at present. God calls us to remember. Throughout the Old Testament you have that. Remember that you were slaves in Egypt. Remember that you were bondmen in Egypt. Remember how you were making bricks without straw. Remember when you were under the Pharaoh's lash. Remember when you had no hope and I brought you into a land flowing with milk and honey. Remember those days. And he put ordinances before them, the, the Passover, so that they would remember the Passover lamb that was killed the night before they came out to keep before them where they had come from. And God gives them this remembrance. He gives them psalms to sing about it. He memorializes it in books of the Bible. 
in great detail so that the people will have something to hold on to, especially when times get dark. And that's what seems to be the situation here. That that joy has now left them. They're looking back to a time when God moved. It was an international thing. Look at what it says in verse 2. Then they said among the nations, the Lord has done a great thing for them. I mean, Cyrus not only let them come back into the land, but he gave them the materials to start building the wall and the city and the temple. He sent all the furniture back and all the implements back. And he said, here's money for timber. Here's money for stone cutters. And here's... He, he, he opened the, the, the vault. And in that time, that would have been an incredible uh, uh, um, thing for the nations to hear about. What God is doing for the nation of Israel. It was said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. And so it was a high point. And he agrees, verse 3, the Lord has done great things for us and we are glad. But that level of intimacy with God, that enjoying of God, seemed to be eluding them now at the present. Their fortunes had turned for whatever reason. And I think in large part, we can find that in the post-exilic prophets like uh, uh, Haggai and Zechariah and Malachi. And we read of Haggai there, where this, and in those prophets, the prophets were addressing a certain situation where the people had become worldly. They came back. You would think that would have been enough to keep them going and to say, this, this is just awesome that we we should serve the Lord with gladness and sacrifice and uh, and so on for the rest of our lives but they became complacent they became worldly they needed to be revived what was the problem they had started to build started to build the temple thus says the Lord these people say that the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord they put it on hold they said, we've got other priorities. It's not really the best time to start to keep on going because there's so much opposition. Send Ballot and Tobiah and all these people, they're always harassing us and really what we should do is just shut things down for a while. Plus, I've got that piece to build on my house. I've got that uh, new car I want to buy and I've got this and that. And this is what God is saying. Is it time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while the house of the Lord lies in ruins? Now that can be taken for uh, all sorts of uh, uh, applications today. The house of the Lord, well, we can say the cause of the Lord locally and worldwide lies in ruins. Now therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. 
to the prophet Haggai and Zechariah and Malachi. These prophets started to prophesy to them, lay their sins before them. Say, your fortunes have turned sour because you have turned your heart away from God. We can easily diagnose that in our own lives, can't we? As we look back on our week, on the week that just was, and say, what was my prayer life like? What was my devotional life like toward the Lord? What are my priorities in terms of my spending? What are the priorities in terms of my giving time to the Lord? And we can easily, quickly diagnose our own situation. Now therefore, he says, consider your ways. You have sown much and harvested little. You eat, but you have never enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them into a bag with holes. And so, he begins to recall. Restore our fortunes, O Lord, like streams streams in the Negev. The prayer, then, is strengthened from what God has already done. And here lies the, the benefits of looking back. Looking back into church history, just as I pointed out at the beginning of uh, of our service in terms of what went on even within this building. What went on outside, 500 people. We can't even imagine 500 people inside, let alone 500 people outside with 1,000 people inside. And those things are to stir us up. Many people who have read the diaries and, and the, 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 the biography of George Whitfield have found themselves at the end of it just crying out, Lord, do it again. Whitfield going out into the fields with 10, 15, 20,000 people without any kind of microphone. Here I am, I have a microphone, and we're just all sitting around here. He had 20,000 people that he was speaking to sometimes. And people who have read that and looked at it, they become... They have that desire, Lord, that you would do it again, visit us again. That's what he's saying here. Restore our fortunes, O Lord, like streams in the Negev. This was a very dry part of the south part of the country. And this, the streams that would come would be very quick. There would be a long period of dryness followed by intense rains so that the rivers would flood very, very quickly. And so this is the level of, of refreshing and blessing that the psalmist wants. Nothing else will do, Lord. Open Yourself up to us. Give us Your Spirit. Pour out Your blessing upon us. One person has said that the streams are no, not an ordinary phenomenon as much as they represent proverbially the sudden unleashing of God's blessing. They represent the unleashing of God's blessing. And this is, he, he doesn't say, Lord, just turn on the taps. No, he says, Lord, let there be such blessing come upon your people. You have said open for us to open our mouths that you may fill it. 
Because, Lord, what we want is Your presence. And that doesn't come in a small measure. We want to know the fullness of Your blessing. Restore our fortunes like streams in the Negeb. And so the, the psalmist is here praying that the blessings of God would begin to pour into their lives in a rich new way. And he's not speaking in terms of agricultural or financial things. For that's not the, 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 the mind of the psalmist. We can see it back in Psalm 85, which the themes of which parallel this one very closely in the psalm that we just sang. Lord, You were favorable to Your land. You restored the fortunes of Jacob. You forgave the iniquity of Your people. You covered their sin. You withdrew all Your... You see where His priorities are. It's not in grain or in wine or in agricultural things, but it's in spiritual things. This is what the, the psalmist is looking for here in Psalm 126. Lord, open the floodgates of Your blessing. We are suffering from futility. We are sowing, but we're getting nothing back. We are putting money into our, our, into our sacks and it's like there's, they're full of holes. Lord, we're, we're living in a life of frustration and what we are experiencing financially is also reflected in our relationship with You. And God points that out to them in their lives. He says, this is why you're enduring all this frustration. Because there is this lack of, of intimacy. There's this distance. There's this worldliness that has taken over your heart. And so the psalmist in 85 goes on, he says, Restore us again, O God of our salvation. Put away your indignation toward us. Will you be angry with us forever? Will you prolong your anger for all generations? Will you not revive us again so that your people may rejoice in you? Show us your steadfast love, O Lord. Grant us your salvation. Then he goes on, Let me hear what the Lord God will speak. For He will speak peace to His saints, but let them not turn back to foolishness, to folly, Surely His salvation is near to those who fear Him that glory may dwell in our land. This is the focus of the psalmist. He's drawing on the successes and the blessings of the past to say, Lord, You have been good to Your people in the past. And the blessings that our forefathers enjoyed in this very building are the things that we ought to covet most of all. Now, we have moved on in many ways and we're thankful to God that we live in 2021. I'm glad I don't live back in the 1800s, to be honest. Oh, you might know the, oh, well, the postcards, look, the, the, the pictures, the paintings look so cozy. Yeah, but they, many children died in infancy. Uh, people would get sick and, and die of things that are easily curable today. They often were cold in the winter and too hot in the summer. and They had to work and died at a very young age because the work was so strenuous. 
I'm quite glad of the blessings of the technological advancements that God has given to us. But one thing that we do ought to covet, we should covet, that our forefathers did enjoy, was a hunger for God. And that's why we must keep these stories alive uh, that happened even in our own uh, uh, building. How God moved, how there was a hunger in the hearts of the people. And to say, Lord, do it again. Let those times of refreshing come back. And, And this is what he's doing. He says, Lord, you did it for them. Will you not do it for us? Children can be like that sometimes too, too can't they? Dad, you did. You let him do it. How come you can't let me do it? They, you, they, they, they will say that, to, to come with these very strong arguments. And this is what we're saying to God. You did it for them, Lord. And look at where they were in their lives. You restored the fortunes of Jacob when they were backslidden and they cried out to you for mercy and you heard them. And God, we're we're in the same predicament. Lord, we, we want that fullness of joy that your people had when they cried and said, like in Psalm 121, I joyed when to the house of God go up, they said to me. Lord, we want to know your holy presence in a greater way. We want to have that intimacy with you. Be like the Apostle Paul. I want to know him. The, the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings. Even if it has to come through suffering, I want to know him. And so he's putting God in remembrance of these things. That God would revive people because the psalmist he's a godly man and he knows that nothing less than a heart that's right with God is what God requires he can't bear a dry dead heart before this God can you let me ask you that tonight are you content and satisfied if you're if you are that way tonight maybe you're not and I and I I rejoice that you're not but if you feel that way that you find more joy in the world, in worldly things, than you do in the things of God. And that you're easily drawn to these things. And you can talk about them. You can give your money for them. You can, you can build your life around them. And then when it comes to the things of God, it's quick off the mark in the morning. It's... it's television at night, Netflix, playoffs, whatever it may be. And when it's getting together with others, it's the price of this and where I'm going on my next vacation and whatever it is. Are we happy with that in the light of all that God has done? This is what the psalmist is saying. Lord, restore our fortunes. Lord, revive us that we might be glad in You. Those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. He who goes forth, he goes who goes out weeping, bearing the seed for sowing, shall come home with shouts of joy, bringing his sheaves with him. So there's the the remembrance of God's mercies in the past. There's this prayer that he makes that God would restore his fortunes. Then there's this promise that those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. Jesus says much of the same. 
in uh, the Gospel of Matthew, in the, the Sermon on the Mount, in ch- chapter 5 at the beginning, where he says, Blessed are those who are poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. And so on. And so here he's saying, those who sow in tears. In other words, while we look to God for revival and blessing, yet on our part as well, we must realize that there is a work to do in terms of, again, reorienting ourselves around who are we? Who are we? Who am I? Who is God and what has He done? What has He called me to be? Do I see myself as no more than a wife or a husband or someone who has this profession or that profession? Or do I see myself first and foremost as who I am in the eyes of God? And I begin then to build. This is what the people of God were doing. Go back to Haggai. They were building after God said, look, here's your priorities, and they're not right. What did the people do? Verse 12, Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, the son of, and Jehoshadak, uh, Joshua, the son of Jehoshadak, the high priest, with all the remnant of the people, obeyed the voice of the Lord their God, and the words of Haggai the prophet, as the Lord their God had sent him, And the people feared the Lord. There you've got revival on your hands now. It's no more my house, my car, my priorities, my reputation. It's the people feared the Lord. The fear of man was a snare for them. The prophet Malachi says, he says, you you fear your boss. Go off, go take this sacrifice that you're bringing to me and give it to your boss and see what he says of it. Bruised and broken, half dead. You wouldn't present that to your your governor or the prince of the land, but you give it to me. You see, they feared man more than God. But here, through the preaching of Haggai and Zechariah, it said the people feared the Lord. Then Haggai, the messenger of the Lord, spoke to the people with the Lord's message. Here's what the Lord comes back to them and says, I am with you, declares the Lord. Isn't that a beautiful thing? They had been backslidden. They had grown hard. Their fortunes had turned. God comes to them, and in His mercy, He gives them the prophet Haggai and Zechariah and Malachi. They're rebuked in their heart for their worldliness, their priorities. They said, this, was, this is not good enough. This is not good enough for the God of the Exodus. This is not good enough for the God who brought back the exiles, who caused us to dream as if we were dreaming the whole thing. It was so fantastic. This is, this is not worthy of a God like that. And so they feared this God. By that, he means they put their trust in Him. They reverenced Him. They adored Him. And He responds. He says, send this back, this word back to them. I am with you. 
that we hear the voice of the Lord. I am with you, declares the Lord. And the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, the governor of Judah, and Joshua, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. It's snowballing. They fear the Lord. They start to work. They start to put themselves, put the Lord's priorities first in their lives. They go home and they start to think about it. And as they do, God gives them a greater measure of His Spirit. He continues to stir them up. And there is a revival. And they came and worked on the house of the Lord of hosts their God on the 24th day of the month, in the sixth month, and in the second year of Darius the king. It shows the historical reality that it wasn't just a, 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 a fairy tale dreamt up, but it, it happened in, in history. He brings it down to the year and the month of how God began to do that. Wouldn't it be wonderful if the generation after us were able to say, that was the year and the month. God began to stir up the people. The people realized that a half-hearted approach to such a God who did not spare His own Son was, it was just not good enough. And that the people began to pray in their homes. They began to pray in their churches and online. They began to sanctify God's day and say, uh, to, to seek Him in His church, to seek Him in His, in, his, uh, uh, in His worship, to put Him first and foremost in their lives. This, it is in these ways, then God honors that. And He calls, he, he, this is how God works. He draws us back to Himself. He revives us. But are, there, there are those priorities. Those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. One person has said that God's ability to restore life is beyond our understanding. Forests burn down and are able to grow back. Broken bones heal. Even grief is not a permanent condition. Our tears can be seeds that will grow into a harvest of joy because God is able to bring good out of tragedy. When burdened by sorrow, know that your times of grief will end and that you will again find joy. We must be patient as we wait. God's great harvest is coming. This is the harvest that the psalmist is looking for. These are the sheaves that he's looking for. Remember what we spoke of in 2 Corinthians a couple of weeks ago where Paul is trying to stir up the Corinthians to participate in the work of the kingdom of God? And in chapter uh, uh, 9, he says, He who supplies seed to the sower... He says, you will be enriched. Oh no, it's a, he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. In other words, the psalmist is reorienting his priorities. He says, look at what God did. He restored the fortunes of Jacob. It was international news. 
All the nations were witnessing of how God was merciful to his people. And we were like people in the midst of a dream. It was so wonderful. And now we're realizing that we have taken this God for granted. Now, we don't frame it in those ways exclusively now, do we? We frame it in terms of the cross, which is which opens up these passages in an amazing way. We speak of the fact that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. And so he comes back. This is often applied to evangelism, isn't it? Those who go out weeping, bearing seed for sowing. And that is a a big part of it as well. Spurgeon said, you must cultivate the sacred passion. You must think much upon the divine realities until they move and stir your souls that men are dying and perishing, that hell is filling. Until like Jeremiah, we say, oh, that my head were were waters and my eyes fountains of tears. That we have again, we we have the same heart of, of Christ. How do you know that you're being revived? How do you know that revival is going on in your church? Because you are not only being made like into the into Christ, but you're you're taking on his priorities. You're you're weeping his tears, the tears for the lost, the tears that he wept over a hardened people. You're mourning maybe over your own sin. You're you're now alive to the disadvantages of the people around you. You are not satisfied with a a dead spirit in your soul or in your church, but you're you're saying, Lord, revive disabled church. Revive my soul, O God. You're not giving him rest until he restores the fortunes of disabled. These are the promises that he sets out here. Those who go out sowing seeds in tears will come back bringing their harvest sheep with them. God is saying, God makes those promises. That's what Paul did in 2 Corinthians, as I said. He, and he's, he's getting the Corinthians to basically say, we're putting God to the test here. We're, God is saying, test me on this. I'm stirring up your spirit again so that you might give to the people in Jerusalem and see if I will not bless you in many ways. You will be enriched, he says, in many ways. He was not mocking them. He was challenging them to go after God, to put it on the line for God, to test God and see if he's not true to his word. And that's what he's saying here. He's saying not these things to mock us or that we'll have nice songs to sing, but God has challenged us to say, this is who I am. These are my promises. And when we step out in faith, when we begin to build our lives around who we are and who we are in Him, then He says, this is where I will meet you. This is where I will. you will hear in your ears, I am with you, says the Lord of hosts. Let's pray.